Welcome to the Heretex podcast. You can get us at heretex.io or send us email at feedback at heretex.io. Mark, I have no idea why you should be on this particular podcast. I mean, what landed you in this place? Uh, well, somehow I met you and uh, I needed a cup of coffee and you were polite enough to actually offer one. So, uh, but do we actually talk about any sort of like technology stuff here? I, I have no idea. Uh, we do. But if you want to know exactly what technology stuff we talk about, you have to listen to the rest of the podcast. And beautiful podcasts start like beautiful relationships with just a chance meeting. It's time to talk about change. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Heretex podcast. I am super, super pleased to say that we have Adam Jacob with us today. Adam, as many of you will know, was uh, one of the founders of Chef. <clears throat> and uh, Adam uh, and I have known each other for some time. And Adam is a wonderful human being, um, a very clever man. And uh, today he is going to be spending some time talking about, well, whatever we decide to talk about. So that's what we in the trade call a very structured interview. Um, but certainly, uh, Adam, I know that you've had some um, very uh, interesting um, things to say in public around open source models, the commercial value of open source, also the human value of open source. I think it would be great to talk about that. And I think um, certainly based on your consulting time and the chef uh, experience, let's talk a little bit about essentially what we talk about in this podcast, which is enterprise technology and, and you know what it means to change companies um, using technology, changing these large behemoths and getting them to... Um, start realizing some of the benefits of, of the technology that you and others have been building. So that sounds great. Um, yeah. So where do you want to start? Oh, I mean, let's start where, uh, let's start with, let's start with open source. Cause that was what was on your list first. Fab. Awesome. Open source. So why on earth would I want to trust a whole bunch of people like you with massive beards writing mm. software when I could be buying it from a, big, reliable company that charges me license fees. Can I just say, yeah, can, can I just okay. like interject here? They, they yes, are please. lovely companies. I used to work at one uh, that started with a big O, and uh, mm. we just loved, loved maintenance fees. They were awesome. Yeah, sure. Who doesn't love a maintenance fee? They are the best. I, I mean, look, I think the truth is if you, uh, if you work for, like, let's say a giant bank, um, you probably should be paying someone for your software. Um, and the reason for that, though, might not be uh, quite the same as people expect. So I think often when we talk about open source, we think of it in terms of in terms of like free versus paid, right? So like paying some a company for the giant O for their maintenance fees versus just downloading whatever you want and doing whatever you want with it without paying for it. There's certainly an element of that that's true. But I think ultimately, when we think about why we buy things, we buy them because there's some scarcity, right? It's not it's not very complicated to understand that like, if I have something and you want it and you offer me money, I decide to give it to you. And then if I don't, if you don't give me money, then I don't give it to you. That's how it works, right? Um, and I, that that is the exact same mechanism that happens in open source when we talk about when we talk about open source business models or we talk about open source channels. 
Um, there isn't really an open source business model. Um, that's why I said channel just a second ago. In fact, open source is a channel inside of a business model. And what that channel does is give you the largest, ideally, it gives you the largest possible set of people at the top of the funnel. Um, so it gives you a massive amount of people that you can reach because they can just use the software. They can already decide that it's good. Um, and then the question of which model you use uh, is a question of how we prosecute those people at the top. So how do we get those people at the top and turn into dollars at the bottom? Um, and that's really what open source business models are. Um, and so I think in the in the range of, you know, why would I trust you? Um, that's actually at the heart, I think, of most open source business models. Because if you think about it, a bank shouldn't just download some software off the internet and then run it to run their core banking operations. That is a horrifically bad idea, right? Um, because what you do is incredibly important to the structure of the people's lives that you support by offering your banking services. What you want to do um, is trust the, the supply chain. You need to trust that the thing that you're using is safe, that it's good, that it does what it says on the tin, that there's that people continue to support it. And that supply chain isn't just the software. It's, it's the humans who produce it. It's the engineers who write it. It's the QA pipelines. It's the software release process. It's the marketing. It's the sales process. All that stuff is a part of that software supply chain. And so the reason you should pay for your open source software is because you need that supply chain uh, to be intact and you need to be able to certify that that supply chain is true and you do it through vendors. Um, and the trick is how do we create scarcity so that you still pay us for it, right? Because in a lot of open source software, what you have is companies producing the software and then certifying that whole supply chain and then giving it to you for free. Um, and when we do that, unshockingly, some large number of people decide they don't want to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's the, this whole idea of of a channel. I haven't I haven't heard it expressed like that before, Adam. The the idea of open source being a channel inside a business model. When when you mm-hmm. use the word channel, you, you're really referring to um, essentially the the value chain that that delivers value. Um, yeah. In in that funnel kind of view, but but there's there's something else which is the the network effects that I think kick in with open source, which right. you don't get where the actual product is being produced essentially within like a, a a completely walled garden, as it were. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, when I talk about it as a channel, you know, you can think of that like very traditional way to show someone's business model is the is the funnel, right? So you draw two lines that are coming down at the bottom, there's dollar bills, right? And at the top is everybody that you might ever possibly uh, sell your product to. And hopefully some large number of those people come down to the bottom, you know? Like that's that's sort of one-on-one business. Like it's the same if you're a bank as if you're a hot dog stand. Like it's basically the same, the varying degrees of complexity. When we say there's a channel, there's multiple ways that people enter the top of that funnel, right? There's multiple ways that, that people learn about the thing. So if you're a bank, there's multiple ways people learn that you're a bank and that they should use your services. It's not one path, right? So a path is the open source path. Um, and the open source path tends to be people grabbing the software and using it and then sharing it with each other, which to Justin's point causes this network effect at the top where the number of people using the software, being excited about it, being able to do something useful with it is disproportionately large compared to people who don't have that channel working well. Um, that's one of the reasons that open source is so powerful when you think about creating 
a business because the ability to create such a strong network effect at the top of the funnel is, I think, basically impossible to do in proprietary software. It's really, really hard at the very least, right? Whereas in open source, if it becomes popular um, and people do use it because the software is good, well, that network effect is ridiculous. It's so strong, right? Um, and I don't know of better, there, I don't think there is a better way to create that effect um, than to use open source. Yeah, but I also think yeah. it, yeah. a part of that equation comes in where a, we're actually in a very different time where now the end users, the people who are using the product, actually have a, a lot more influence. So they could bring it in. Back in the, the days when I was with, with the Big O, uh, it was very different. The people that were buying the software were very senior, and, and user input was, I wouldn't say it wasn't important, but there were a lot more dynamics that were going on in mm-hmm. the purchasing decisions. Yes, so I think that, that has like a huge influence. I mean, and I'm sure that's kind of what you've seen is just the rise of the developer and developer enablement kind of taking open source and that creating an even greater effect. Absolutely. I mean, look, when an engineer can simply take a tool, I mean, forget about whether it's open source or not. Let's forget about the license. If you can use something for free and it solves your problem, you will probably do it, right? (laughs) Because you're going about your day or whatever. Right. And then there's a better way to solve the problem. And there's no, and there's no barrier between you and the solution. You just do it. Right. Um, And then later on, your boss is like, hey, that was amazing. Good work. How did you do that? And you're like, well, I used this free thing I got off the internet to solve this problem, right? Um, And then we start having a conversation about like, what is that thing? And what does it do? And next thing you know, it turns out that thing is Chef and it runs the entirety of a global bank. And you're like, hey, so who precisely builds this thing? Where does it come from? Because maybe we shouldn't just run the bank on a thing that like, you know, come from the internet. And then you wind up having a business conversation about how much it's going to cost in order to get that supply chain in a sort of certified way. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the the supply chain and you've spoken about this in uh, you've spoken about this in public, Adam, uh, and and on Twitter, the the supply chain is in the delivery of a an instance of the software. Yes, and the network effects essentially apply to essentially the class of all the software versions of that thing, right? Yes, that's right. So you can yeah. think of it as like you have the software. So let's I'll use Chef as an example. So, you know, Chef is completely open source. Um, and it wasn't always this way, but it is now. So they don't produce a single line of proprietary software anymore. Um, haven't for the last year. Um, and instead, what they do is they open source every single thing that they do. But they produce a product called Chef. And the only way to get that product from Chef, the company, is to pay them. Um, or at the very least, to agree to their commercial terms, right? Which they happen to publish those binaries and that product with terms that make it free to use for a huge number of people, right? So, uh, but whenever you're downloading Chef, what you're doing is downloading a product from Chef, the company. Um, Now, because of the software is open source, the community, the broader community of people who use Chef have produced alternate distributions of Chef. So another one would be Sync, um, stands for Sync is not Chef. Um, and sync is produced by a bunch of lovely people who volunteer from all over the world. And they build another supply chain where they repackage that same software, uh, and distribute it to anyone who wants it under an open source license with no terms attached. Um, now the question then becomes if you're, you know, a global bank, you could totally run sync, 
And the question you're asking yourself there is, do you trust that group of volunteers? Um, and what do you know about that group of volunteers and how they produce that software, how they can support that software, who you can call, who, you, who the engineers are that build it, what kind of feedback you can get. So when you compare those two things from a commercial point of view, like the chef version of that software is pretty viable, right? Um, it also solves uh, that that approach and that model um, also solves a problem that I know, Justin, you saw when you worked at Chef, which is like there was always this tension between what was in the open source and what's free, uh, what's in the open source and what's commercial um, and what what features people need in order to sort of like close a deal where, you know, a huge amount of the value was the network effect of Chef. It was the core piece right. of what it did. Um, and we set the value of that to zero dollars. Right. We said, hey, that 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 is a free thing. You can get it from us with all of the supply chain intact and all of that value. Um, and no matter who you are or to what purpose you're going to use it for. Um, and the side effect of that is it's pretty complicated as a business model, as a channel. Like it's it was pretty tough. Um, and that transition away from building proprietary software at all inside of Chef um, really streamlined that process a lot. Yeah, it seems like you, you, you're adding the, these layers of complexity uh, when really the value, you guys, as I'm hearing you explain it, is really... Uh, it's a, it's an insurance policy. It's a management of risk if you're an enterprise, because it, the value of the of the network that's something that we've already established or given away because it is open source. But when we're trying to actually commercialize something, we would, we want to at least from the customer perspective, the enterprise perspective, we need to make sure that we can identify the source of that that software, who's kind of the owner or manager of it. Yes. And be able to and assume anything that any any bad things that happen, that there's someone that's covering it, and who can help you with the good things? Like exactly. who's the most who's the most capable of assisting you when you're trying to use that software, or you encounter trouble, or um, or who can add the features that you need added? Right? There's the volunteers who build Sync are they're delightful humans, but there's but they have day jobs, they have other things. It's not what they do for a living. Meanwhile, Chef has, you know, a couple hundred people who work for it doing nothing but creating Chef. And so when you think about whose supply chain you want to get that software from, it's a pretty clear transaction. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's pretty obvious. Um, the important part is that in order for that network effect to live at the top, the community has to be real. Like, there has to be the fact that I don't know who you are. So we're talking about this in the context of a bank. But if the thing you want to do to better your own life or to move forward with your own existence is to take Chef's software and do something else with it, you want to create Coffee Cup and you're going to build a business that rises, that, that you know supports you and your family, maybe even becomes a huge organization that competes directly with Chef, you need to be able to do that. I want you to be able to do that. Because that's actually what creates the network effect at the top of the funnel. That's what that's what creates that impact that's so strong that allows people to bond the software before they've ever made a purchasing decision. So it's in Chef's best interest um, that those that that community flourishes for whatever reason it needs to flourish. Um, and that is the head trip that I think a lot of people struggle with when they think about open source and business, um, because you really have to believe that the impact at the top of that funnel is greater than whatever you're seeing in the bottom. Um, and for most organizations, when you think about the metrics you look at, it's very clear to look at the metrics at the bottom of the funnel and be like, well, did we win or lose that deal? Right. Um, did we did, did, because you can see it. Whereas sort of investing in the top of the funnel is investing in this 
amorphous blob of users at the top that you just you can't track and you don't know who they are and you just have to believe that they're there you know you have to have faith um and it's a little like asking there's a there's an old saying about like how you know what faith is and it's the same as trying to describe what salt tastes like without using the word salt right (laughs) and you just you can't do it it's not a thing um and open source business is kind of the same like you just have to have faith that when you invest in the top of that funnel that what you're doing is growing this massive thing at the top and you you know it's happening but you can't prove it right it's and i think when i when i when i hear you say that yeah i kind of i, I get attached to that word community mm. and i think a lot of organizations a lot of like a lot of uh, the enterprise proprietary vendors have started to glom onto this word called community yeah but i don't really think that they understand what community really is. They're still looking at the traditional funnel. What you're talking about is a very different thing. It, it's a genuine community that's been created. Yeah, ideally. So, I mean, yeah. there's lots of different kinds of community. Like, like I, for example, I love comic books. Um, and I'm definitely a member of the, like, greater comic book fandom. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. But I'm just, not. But I'm, just, as, just as an aside, favorite comic book? Oh, the X-Men because uh, I'm I'm 42, which means that like I kind of grew up in peak Chris Claremont X Men, so like that's my that's my thing yep. till I die. Um, I, um, but yeah. So the thing about that being a comic book fan is that I have no ownership over Marvel. I can't write my own X Men stories. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like right. it's not a community um, of people who share of shared purpose, like who are working together to sustain ourselves with this thing. I'm a, I'm a member of that community because I love the thing that they produce, which is different than say, um, like being a member of a church, right. Or being a member of a watershed or being a member of an open source community. You know, when we think about those kinds of communities, what we're saying is we have a shared resource. We have a shared justification. We have a shared understanding of why we're all together and we're here to lift each other up and to further sustain this thing that we all love our faith um, the watershed, the software, right? Um, and that's, to me, those are the communities I'm interested in. Not that I don't love and I'm not a member of user communities or fandom, like, of course I am. But but that's the difference. And so when you see proprietary software companies be like, the Oracle community is so welcoming, like, what they mean is the people who use Oracle are so kind. And I, you know, maybe they are. <laughs> but you see what I mean? Like, it's it's not the same. But yeah, as for, in terms of marketing, it's a delight. You know, it's much better than being like the people we take money from. Like that's not a super great marketing message. And in, in yeah. terms of like Justin's case, he actually just buys his fans. So uh, yeah, I, I, I he think buys that's them that... with scotch, and it's great. I mean, the 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 weird thing though is, even though I'm willing to do that, I still don't have many. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's probably that it's unsustainable because you can't keep up with you. You know what I mean? It's so it's so disappointing. Yeah, I mean, it one is. of the things one of the I'm I'm thinking about the um, the implications of open source and. You know, if we go all the way back to like the cathedral and the bazaar, this wonderful sure. network effect of the bazaar is essentially what you're talking about. Uh, let me let me ask if if we consider the growth in the maturity of open source communities over the last twenty years, yeah, um, is it conceivable that in the future? And I'm asking for crystal ball. Um, 
thinking mm-hmm. here. But is it conceivable that in the next 20 or 50 years that our trust of a networked self-interest and community interest-driven group of people producing software is actually as trustworthy as a supply chain that is validated or um, essentially warranted by a company. A completely proprietary supply chain. Exactly. Um, yeah. Look, I think it should already be. Like, it, it makes no sense to me at all that you would believe that what you should do is stake your livelihood. Well, let me back up. Let me answer this question with a slightly more fundamental thing. What's unique about software as a resource is that it is infinite. As long as you have power and compute, you can run that software. And that is an, that is very interesting. There's no other real resource like it in the universe that I know of, right? Um, certainly it's like, it's not like water or minerals or money like it's not this finite thing um and and because the resource exists that way that's why software can create these kinds of communities where where people can use the thing for their own self-interest right and by doing that it's not zero sum it's because of that unique property of software that is that 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 says that look it's it's just ones and zeros like it's not it, it doesn't have to be scarce um and so from a business perspective, I think eventually we're going to get to a place where we realize that the the ability to see the source of the software, to be able to take the software and do what we need, to be able to collaborate together to serve our better ends is net good across the supply chain, right? Um, we still need people who produce and sustain it in a primary way. You know, we need the people who are the upstream, who, who put in that effort and that energy to create that supply chain so that it can be consumed downstream. But if I'm an enterprise who relies on that software for my own good work, the ability to go into that software if I need to, to make changes if I need to, to be able to collaborate with that broader community around things that we might not be able to invest in alone, I think is better like in a qualitative way um, than the idea of a proprietary supply chain where I can't do those things, right? Um, I actually think mm. in a crystal ball way, you're going to see the enterprise demanding that the software that they run at the core of their business be open source. Because if it's not, you're actually taking this deep and very unnecessary risk. Um, I think the only gap to that is that we've basically forgotten how to build good open source businesses because the only really great one was Red Hat. (laughs) And then everything else (laughs) has been some model, some variant of the open core model, um, which I really think is bad. Like I think the network effect is so good that the open core model looks like it works pretty great. Um, and the truth is they'd be working better, um, if they weren't open core. Um, but again, we're back to faith, right? Um, the only evidence we have for that is that no business that's open source has ever done as well as Red Hat has done. And I believe that's because Red Hat actually has a better model. Just for our listeners, Adam, could you just, uh, elaborate a little on, on the difference between, uh, open core open platform and, and those kinds of ideas? Sure. Yeah. So there's there's a bunch of different uh, variants of like how to build an open source channel. So the most common commercial one is some variation of what's called open core. And so what that means is we have some piece of software that's open source, the core, um, and it's like the core value of what you do. So it's enough of the software that the vast majority of people can use it to do really useful, successful things. Um, so companies like HashiCorp 
uh, or Elastic are both open core companies. Um, the, then what they do is they take some set of features and they say, these are the proprietary features that we use to sell to business, right? So we produce Vault and then we have an enterprise version of Vault. And the enterprise version of Vault has these features that we think our target market needs in order to be successful with the software, right? Security features, uh, dashboards and management tooling or whatever the answer is, right? Um, and so in that model, what they're doing is they're setting the value of the open source piece to $0. And then they're hinging all of their value on the proprietary pieces that they wrap around it. So they go to a bank and they try to convince the bank, hey, bank, you don't just need this free thing I build. What you really need is this feature in the proprietary thing. And if you don't have it, you're screwed. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess maybe I'll do it. Um, now in Red Hat's model, um, what I call the free software product model, what you do instead is say, look, we produce an enterprise product. We produce Red Hat Enterprise Linux, OpenShift, um, Chef, right? And the only way to get that from me is to buy it, <laughs> right? If you want Red Hat Linux, the only way to get it is to pay Red Hat for Red Hat Linux. Um, now, you can get CentOS for free, right? Feel free to go get CentOS. Now, that supply chain is different from the Red Hat Enterprise Linux supply chain, right? Uh, it maybe lags a little. Uh, it's run by different people. It has different sets of volunteers, right? Um, and so that model says is much closer to the enterprise software model because what you get is the value of all of the software, right? If what you want is Chef, there's only one way to get it, and that's to pay me for Chef. Um, and there's no differentiation in features. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's 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 really um, that's really helpful. So if we if we expand it, let's uh, consider um, something that that I, I refer to as, as as a as an open platform, which is essentially a, an aggregation of a number of uh, open source, in the broadest terms, a number of open source products uh, that work and perhaps were even built to work together. So. A, the most obvious example I think today is probably Kubernetes and something like Istio as an example, sure. right? Yeah. So uh, how do you see the network effects driving that coalescence yeah. of products? Because in some yeah, cases, so they, it's worked against it, right? Yeah, I mean, they have a slightly different, they have, so they have a slightly different model. So the people who open sourced Kubernetes, and I'm going to put words in their mouth. They're not here, and I'm not sure they'd put it this way, but this is how I would put it from the outside paying attention. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so if what you care about is the maximum spread at the top of the funnel, um, and you don't care about revenue at the bottom, so what you're doing is fundamentally about disruption, um, right? Um, what you care about most is spread. So Kubernetes comes out of cloud providers who are competing with Amazon. Um, and the problem with competing with Amazon in the cloud pre-Kubernetes was Amazon had this lock on the API that we all used, right? Like EC2 was the API. And, um, and so essentially, by investing in Kubernetes the way that they did, what they were trying to do was create a, to, to break that logjam and get to a place where what people were using was the Kubernetes API. And if that was true, then, you know, Google could be the best Kubernetes provider in the world. And next thing you know, GCP isn't number three with a bullet, right? Um, and so they build an industry consortium, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Um, and that industry consortium's job is to take this software and push it out into the world 
and make the top of that funnel as big as possible. And then the intent is that people who are going to monetize from that do it downstream, right? They produce products. VMware produces a Kubernetes distribution and Amazon produces a Kubernetes service and Azure produces a Kubernetes service and GCP produces a Kubernetes service, right? And Red Hat builds OpenShift, right? And all of that uh, was is by design. Like what they what they were doing intentionally was creating this massive multi vendor consortium whose job was to push this software in the world because it benefited all of those people more that that software be out in the world building the top of funnel, um, and they all knew that they were going to compete downstream of that software. Um, you know, there's an interesting thing where there's a lot of folks who then look at software that is open source that isn't in an industry consortium and say that it's somehow worse or weaker. I think that that's actually like a terrible model um, because what it means is that the only people who are going to benefit from open source are the people with massive resource pools, right? Like that's mm-hmm. it's great if you're Microsoft, but if you're values HashiCorp again, if HashiCorp was to put Vault in the CNCF, they would destroy their own pipeline. Do you know what I mean? Like their own ability yeah. to make money off Vault would go down, not up, um, because now like it would they would be very direct. And it's because they not because they gave up control of the software but because they gave up control of the brand, right? The accrual of value to the brand now would go to CNCF instead of to HashiCorp. They would have to compete with themselves. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's similar to what happened. And again, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't there. I was just on the consumption side. But similar to what happened with, uh, with OpenStack, right? Absolutely. OpenStack was, was a good example of that, I think. Yes, and it was a good example of that... OpenStack was an example of a consortium that didn't really understand what they were competing with, right? They couldn't, OpenStack had this disagreement all along about whether or not they're, they were just going to like mirror the Amazon APIs, like was their job to build an open source alternative to Amazon or were they supposed to be innovative in the cloud computing space? I was always on the part of that side that said they should innovate or they were doomed. Um, and I think history bore me out, right? Like yep. you were never going to out Amazon at Amazon's own game. Like that's a dumb, that's a terrible product strategy. Um, and the one thing you can do better than Amazon is be better at your own software. That's like the only thing you can do, right? Um, cause you're not going to be better at operating it at scale. You don't have more lift. You don't have more trust. Like the one thing you got is that you're better at the thing you do than they are. And so I think by design, OpenShift was never, I'm sorry, uh, OpenStack um, was sort of by design set up to not thrive in the same way that you're seeing the Kubernetes world yeah. thrive. Because the Kubernetes world always had the starting position that was that it was about Kubernetes and the innovation and, and it was a better model. Whereas, you know, I think OpenStack was never about building you a better model. It was about giving you the model that you already understood in a way that was kind of like the one you already had, only you had to run it yourself. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so if, if we extrapolate some of these lessons... Um, into a slightly different domain, obviously in a number of markets, not just banking, um, but it's certainly in banking as well. Uh, In a number of markets, the idea of open APIs in the commercial space um, is beginning to be um, more and more important. Yeah, I mean, I think because the API isn't, it's not just an open API. Like, you know, it's good to have an open API or whatever, but the truth is collaborating on the implementation is what matters for most people, right? Because what's the value of the API without a good implementation, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you want the top of the funnel to work well, 
well, what I need is an implementation that people can use to solve real problems with low friction, which implies that the people who are behind this like open API standard, like if what we're doing is getting together as a bunch of like investor and in, in, uh, as a bunch of industry folks building uh, this open API standard, and none of us are releasing a consumable version of that standard that people can use at the top of the funnel, then what you're doing is sort of kneecapping yourself, right? It's just, uh, it's just a lot of looking at the standard and pretending you've done good work. Yeah, I mean the 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 whole argument around open APIs obviously is is if we consider uh, if we consider an ideal basket of goods for any any consumer, um, there is an argument which says that no company can produce uh, best of every breed. Which therefore means if we enable an ecosystem where we're able to uh, frictionlessly integrate products that are created by people who are, to use your phrase, Adam, uh, best at what they do, um, we can then create better outcomes for customers because they are then picking you know, the best uh, product from this company, the best product from that company, putting them together to achieve an overall outcome. Of course, banking is a good example. Um, retail supply chains are also good examples. Yeah. Um, I mean, how, how could we use some of the lessons in, in open source software development to drive the efficiency of those APIs? Because, I mean, they've, they've been very consortia driven up until now. Right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not convinced that they can. Like, I'm not convinced that there's actually value in open APIs and the way that people hope, because it implies that the abstractions are are understood um, and finite. And so, when you and the truth is, the shape of the API, the API is a reflection of the model inside, right? And there's a question about how good a reflection it is or isn't, right? So, I, some APIs are better than others, but like, ultimately, if what you say is in order to build a good product, you have to conform to this public open API we've all agreed on. Then what we're saying really on the inside is that we're deeply constraining what's possible to do with the solution on the inside. And so anytime you're going to get something that's innovative and great, it's going to break the API. So it's kind of a bullshit problem. Do you see what I mean? Like by saying, hey, the API is constrained. Well, as soon as you constrain the API that way, you're constraining the solution space, which is precisely what you don't want if you want best of breed stuff. So unshockingly, you wind up with a bunch of middle of the road, milk toast software (laughs) that's kind of universally bad in the same way. And like, who cares? And like, I get why it sounds good. Like, especially in like, if I'm an architect, the idea that I could swap one piece of software for another because the APIs are compatible, that's a delight. Who doesn't want that? And also the implication there is that it's so stable and so solid that I don't, that the API surface never needs to change or if it needs to change, it can change very slowly. And I think for most innovative software, that is not true and you don't want it to be true. So I'm, I'm not a huge believer that that's a thing that can ever actually work to people's benefit long-term. I think it only creates bad software. Well, it's it's the same. It's it's kind of like this uh, this idea that oh, it is open because we're all talking about it as a bunch of people. But in, in fact, to your point, it actually ends up creating a very opinionated view of what the solution space could be. Yes. So you've set the boundaries. So, 
Yes. And like, look at SQL. Like we all use SQL all the time, but we choose the particular database because of some particular internal feature, which it happens to express as a non-standard variant of SQL. <laughs> like all the innovative parts aren't that you can run select. Do you know what I mean? And right. that's actually the thing that you, that's how you choose. So I'm not saying that you don't ever want to see like a standard SQL is, is a delight, but it's a delight because it is this incredibly complex space that allows for innovation within its own domain. Do you see what I mean? Like we extend the domain of SQL in the way that we desire. And I think that has to be true. And as soon as that starts to be true, then yes, it's valuable that it's just SQL, but that doesn't actually imply anything about portability. It doesn't imply anything about your, how you use it. And as soon as you have that kind of variation, then the benefits Justin was talking about a second ago around being able to choose a best of breed vendor and just slot them in, go away, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what you're saying really implies that if we want to get the product, the core service and product benefits that we get from the network effects of open source at the core of our companies, whatever they happen to be, we need to find a way of applying that those open source disruptive opportunities to the core of our product systems. Yes, I see no reason in the world How do we do that? Why, yeah, by open sourcing them. <laughs> I mean, literally by just open sourcing the software and then by talking about how we're going to collaborate in our own self-interest um, and being comfortable with the fact that that self-interest exists. Do you know what I mean? What happens a lot is that we're really uncomfortable saying that the reason we do this work is because we get benefit. And I think we have to become more comfortable with saying, look, I, I do open source things because I'm, I, I love communities. I love being a part of those things. And I believe that it's better to build sustainable communities that allow people to, to do what they need to do with that software in any way that they need to do it, including competing with me. Like I believe that in a fundamental way. Also, I build, when I built open source software, I did it because I was going to make money. I wanted to build a company that made money. I took venture investment because I wanted to make money. I own a house in San Francisco because I made that investment and I got money <laughs> and that's what I wanted. <laughs> and and, and I will only. tell you, but having a house in San Francisco means you've done very, very well. But it's not the only thing I wanted. Right. Exactly. But, but, but we have to talk about those things. And so like, why would we open source the core of the bank? Well, we would do it because nobody in banking is actually innovating on the core of the bank most likely, right? The truth is if banking soft, if, if we could improve the efficiency of the core of the bank, if we understood the model of, you know, something like consumer banking or whatever, like we probably don't need a ton of innovation in that part of the space, but we probably do want a lot of innovation on the outer edges. Right. And if we do need innovation in that space, being able to see what the existing model looks like across a span of organizations and across a span of that thing would be valuable. Now, doing so would make it a lot easier for people to start a bank, which I don't know is in the self-interest of banks. <laughs> but in theory, it would be right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the 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 opportunities, I think, for creating value, what's what's most obvious um, in in the open source examples that we've been discussing is um, trying to find a way it's 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 easy to use this to to overuse this term, but essentially democratizing the not only the identification of value, but also the configuration of the available resources to 
to deliver that value. And, yeah. you know, what, what, one of the things that we've seen, I think, over the last sort of 20 years with the crisis uh, around, uh, you know, the, uh, the credit crisis mm-hmm. is efficient markets aren't necessarily always that efficient. And no. that is based on the idea that we're democratizing the um, ability to, you know, uh, find and identify resources to meet a need. And we know that resources don't always go where they're needed. And so there is right. something to be said for this fundamental shift in the model where we start democratizing how a value is created in itself. And we start saying that, look, the resource, the value in what we create in software is not actually just the software. It's actually the software is a very small piece of the total value that we get when we're actually using that software to do something complex. And, yeah. and, and we're, but we're not very comfortable with that yet. Like right now, most people still understand it as a finite thing, right? The, it's a lot easier to understand software as a, as a zero sum event that's the same as as any other consumable good. And the truth is, it's not. It is unique in this particular way. And that uniqueness uh, enables this other model. And what we need to do is get comfortable with those truths so that we can get to a place where we understand that that's how it works. But like one obstacle is the fact that for most people who use open source software, the idea that there isn't a build of that software that they can use with the same branding attached that is free they use the same supply chain that they use when they're going to go build something in the world like that's that's pretty antithetical to what a lot of people think when they think about open source software so it's not just that we have to think differently about how business works consumers have to change their point of view as well to say that like what they want is open source software but they're, they understand that sometimes what they're doing is getting that software from a vendor who they're paying for it from, or they're getting it from a community who's willing to put in the work to produce an alternate supply chain. So, Adam, it's been absolutely fantastic um, and very, very enlightening, as it always is, um, to talk to you. Thank you so much for the time. Um, of course. Would you, like a, would you like to tell us about any uh, anything else that you're doing now? or? Um, yeah, I mean, right now what I'm doing is... Yeah, I'm the CEO of a company called The System Initiative, um, and we're pre-product, but I'll have a product, you know, soonish. And when I do, you'll hear from me more about that stuff. I think it's, um, you know, what I can say is that it's got a very different way of thinking about how we work with the technology that runs our lives and our businesses. And I think... Um, like what we're doing is definitely different. And so my hope is that when people see it, there'll be some set of people who see it and immediately will be like, yeah, that's my jam. Like I'm doing it that way now forever. And then there'll be some set of people who will look at it and be like, oh, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> and just reject it deeply. So my hope is that like people have one of those two points of view and hopefully more people love it than don't. But I'm hoping that it's, I, I believe it will be polarizing at least a little bit. I think polarizing is good. I mean, Justin's polarizing, and it hasn't affected him at all. But I, I love want- the crap out of Justin. <laughs> He's literally one of my favorite people. My my mother loves Justin. That's, See, that, that, that and that's amazing something. because I think yeah. Justin's really the worst. <laughs> just the worst. But maybe you can redeem yourself a little bit, just a little bit, Justin, ah, by maybe maybe like. wrapping things up and yes. and summarizing what we learned today. So I have to I have to summarize uh, the Jacob. That doesn't seem fair. Can we outsource? I know. Could we open source the summarization quickly? 
Yeah, look, here's the summary. Uh, open core models, pain in the ass. Uh, free software product models, way better, but less well understood. Open source is not a business model, but a component of a business model. It's actually a channel inside of a business model. Uh, the top of the funnel is about what you optimize in open source channels. If you can get more lift at the top of the funnel, then that creates more opportunity at the bottom, which means you do better. If most and most or all software could be open source uh, and should be because it's actually better because of the nature of software. Um, but we have to change our point of view about how to do that. Uh, open API stuff is kind of nuts because it doesn't actually work. Uh, vendor consortia are fine as long as you know what, what they are. Um, Justin is a delight. My mother likes him, and Mark seems like a good guy. I, well, uh, I, I, I'm I having him on again, I Justin. Wouldn't have. I probably would. I would have. I was with you all the way until you got to the stuff about Mark. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> not a bad, not a bad summary. That's not a bad Thanks, summary. Man. Yeah, yeah, good job. So I would like to say in closing, um, as always, Adam, you are brilliant. Um, it's lovely to hear your perspectives. Um, Something that I know, uh, having worked with Adam for a long time, is there is something very um, important in truly embracing the empowerment of your customers and your partners and the people that work with you. And that really is at the core of open source, the idea that empowerment comes through freedom and not control. That doesn't yes. mean to say there should be no control, but empowerment comes through uh, giving up some control to gain great deal of value. And I think that that's something that we can all think about in how we manage our teams, in how we manage our families, dare I say it. I, I'm the father of a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> how can you give up some control in order to be able to find these surprising and disruptive results, right? Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everyone. All right. Take care. This is the Heretex Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Heretex Podcast. And Justin, what should people do afterwards? Please leave a review. Please inundate everyone with your love for, well, if not Mark and I, because let's be honest, that would be unreasonable. At least our guests, which I'm sure you can agree, have been fantastic. Thank you. Bye. Bye.